Hello and welcome to another fun-packed, action-filled adventure of Exam World Meets Business World with me, Paul Merrison. So what have I got lined up for you lucky people today? Well, today I thought we would, instead of looking at one particular story in quite a bit of depth, we would instead take a look at one full daily edition of the Financial Times. Why, I hear you scream, would we want to do that? Well, it all goes back to something I was told when I was a student 3,000 or so years ago, and yes, the Financial Times did exist back when I was a student. It's not quite that long ago. But I remember several of my tutors saying to all of the students, you guys are studying a business qualification. You should read the Financial Times, read The Economist, listen to the business news on the BBC, because this will all help you understand your studies better. And you can't really argue with the logic behind that, can you? Common sense, totally understood that, but there was a snag. When I went and tried to read the newspapers, especially the Financial Times, I had two problems. Number one, I couldn't work out which articles I should be reading and which articles weren't going to help. And secondly, when I tried reading the articles, I often didn't have the greatest idea of what was going on. The problem, of course, is those articles are being told for a wider business audience. They're not being framed in student language. So about 15 years ago, I had the idea of producing my own newspaper where I would retell the news in student-focused, exam-focused language. So that's what I'm going to do today. I have with me here my companion for this little exercise. Honestly, a real newspaper is in my hand. It is the Financial Times from the 27th of January, 2023. Why that date? Nothing really significant. It just so happened I had to get on an aeroplane on that day. I was at the airport, I saw a free copy of the Financial Times, thought I'll grab that for the flight, and hence I have a copy of it. So if we're going to go through one, we might as well go through the one that I've already got. So I'm going to take you through the Financial Times. I'm not going to read every article. That is not the point. In fact, I'm going to start by telling you the things that are best avoided the sort of subject matter that's unlikely to help you much in whatever professional exams you're trying to pass. I wouldn't bother reading articles about war, about the economy, about foreign exchange movements, what's happening with the pound and the dollar, everyone now wants to go and invest in gold instead. Well, it's all thrilling stuff, but probably not going to help much with exams. I'm not going to look at share prices because, again, I'm not really that interested from an exam perspective. And anything to do with what politicians are saying is probably best ignored. But then I'm guessing you probably thought that already. So what sort of things am I looking for? Well, if I'm looking to go into accountancy, then anything that names an accounting firm, you know, PwC, EY, those sort of people, is probably worth a read. 
If you're sitting exams, you probably have to study tax, so anything involving tax might be worth a little read. Anything to do with boards of directors. When someone is appointing a new chief executive or chairman or something like that, don't care about the name of the person. The name's not really important at all. Look at why are they doing it? How are they doing it? Is it someone internally being promoted or someone coming in from the outside? So those are some of the things you might want to take a look at. Little selection. And you'll see some of those coming up in the articles that I've got for you today. Okay, so where are we going to start? Uh, we're going to start with some tags because there's a little article on page three to do with VAT. Okay, not sounding very exciting at the moment, is it? So what is this article about then? Well, the article is, or if I'll tell you what, let me read the headline for you first. More rustling of newspapers, just to prove I'm not making this up. And on page three, it says, reform of VAT registration threshold urged to arrest rise in enterprises stunting growth. Hey, what's that all about then? So in the UK, there is an £85,000 a year VAT registration threshold. In other words, if your annual revenue as a company, as a trader, is above 85,000, you are required to register for VAT. Now, ignoring for the moment the pluses and minuses of your cash flow, this is going to create some additional administrative burden. You'll have to make sure you're doing proper VAT invoices. And of course, you now have to add VAT onto all of your prices, which may well mean your customers faced with a sudden 20% price rise, might choose to look elsewhere. Okay, you say, well, I won't put the whole 20% on the price. I'll just have to suck some of this cost up myself. But then that's going to hurt your profits. So it turns out a lot of traders and small companies are deliberately not growing above 85,000 a year in sales revenue so they can avoid having to register for VAT. And if you think about it, if you're a, a sole trader and you've got £84,999 of revenue, maybe you're turning 40000 50000 profit out of that if you've got a nice high margin business. Well, congratulations. That's not a bad amount of money to live off. It could be better. But it's decent money with low admin. And it seems a lot of UK traders are doing exactly that. There are a lot who are reporting revenue just under 85,000. Compare that with many other countries, especially in mainland Europe. And there, the threshold tends to be more around 30,000. Now, realistically, if you're running a business and only taking in 30 grand revenue, you're not going to survive, are you? Most people can't live off that. And remember, that's revenue, not profit. So there's a lot of talk going on in the UK at the moment of lowering that VAT threshold to stop people deliberately minimising the size of their business on the basis that 84999 doesn't sound too bad. 
So it's interesting because on the one hand, when you study tax, it's a reminder that there is a threshold, a reminder of what that threshold is, but there's also an element of business strategy in here. When you grow, bear in mind, new taxes or new tax rules are likely to kick in for you. We'll move on now to the second story I want to look at. And the second story <clears throat> is on page nine. So another little rustle of the newspaper. And if you think I'm doing this with clever sound effects, by the way, trust me, I'm not. This is a genuine newspaper. There it is. Now, page nine is important in this particular issue of the Financial Times because it is the first page of the companies and markets section. And that normally is where you'll find most of the stories you should be reading. There's a general news bit ahead of that, which might throw something useful up, like the VAT thing, but it's generally companies you want to be reading about. So on page nine, there is a story. It says message slips cost Morgan Stanley staff up to $1 million. So what's this all about then? Well, this story is quite interesting because we've seen this in other areas, not just Morgan Stanley. The, the story is that Morgan Stanley staff have been conducting some official work business on their personal WhatsApp accounts. Now that's a problem. And it's something we've seen in UK politics in recent times as well. And you're generally not meant to do that because anything you do in your own private social media, WhatsApp, Facebook, uh, Instagram, or whatever it might be, the company, your employer, has no audit trail. They have no physical record of what you've been up to. And if there needs to be an investigation of something at some point in the future, they need that audit trail. It's an internal control for those of you who love your audit papers. So generally, anything you do for work must be done through your work's own email, messaging, uh, maybe your work's own social media accounts. So there is a record. And it seems that Morgan Stanley staff, naughty naughty, have been conducting conversations, trades or whatever it is, outside of their own employer's systems. So Morgan Stanley have fined their staff. Typically, it's been done by withholding bonuses that those staff otherwise would have earned, or, and here's a useful thing for the exams, clawing back bonuses that have already been earned. So the interesting thing exam-wise here is the clawback notion. And this has proved very important in recent years, and I'll tell you why. Back in 2008, we had a bit of a banking crisis. Uh, as you may have noticed in the news, it looks like we're about to have another one. But we had one back in 2008. And that banking crisis caused by a number of things, but one of the big contributory factors was the fact that banks were lending money to people who were never likely to pay the money back. Why on earth would banks do something so stupid? Because their staff earned bonuses 
the more they loaned out. And the thing is, all they had to do was agree a loan with somebody. Whether that loan ever got paid back in the future was not their problem. They got a bonus because they'd loaned money and the bank would therefore be earning some interest. So after the banking crisis of 2008, a number of conversations happened, a lot of committees sat, investigations, how can we put this right? And one of the suggestions was that where people in the banking world are earning bonuses, but we don't yet know without waiting a few years, whether they've earned those bonuses ethically, legally, or whatever, maybe we should put a claw back into the bonus agreement so that if it turns out in the future that bonus was earned in a manner which was not conducive to a profitable business, let's say, the bank could get the bonus back again. And after the banking crisis in 2008, a number of banks did try to get bonuses back multi-million pound bonuses from staff who'd been paid them and the staff refused to pay and when it went to court the staff won because there was nothing in the bonus agreement saying it could be got back. So clawbacks are a very sensible corporate governance measure. If you're going to reward people with large amounts of bonuses, salaries, anything really, you might want to put something in their contract that says, I don't know, for up to five years afterwards, if we discover you've earned that bonus by doing things which breach company policy or are unethical or just plain stupid, we have the right to get the bonus back. Interesting. Okay, turning the page again. Over we go to page number 10. And at the top of page number 10, EY. Well, if you're training to become an accountant, I'd imagine you know who EY are. And EY, formerly known as Ernst & Young, these days everybody is just initials, it seems. So EY Germany are suffering job cuts in Wirecard fallout. So what's this all about then? Well, nice and simple, really. Uh, a company called Wirecard, who were audited by Ernst & Young, German company, suffered a massive fraud. And because EY, it seems, didn't spot any of the naughty behaviour going on, EY's reputation in Germany has taken a bit of a hit. And as a result, several audit clients are ditching EY. And that, of course, means that EY don't need as many staff as they had in the past, and therefore they are cutting places. So what's the key learning point here? Well, we could look at the Wirecard fraud and try and understand how that fraud happened, lessons to be learned. But to be honest, I find with most frauds, there's not much point looking into it. It almost, almost seems to be the case that someone who's got quite a lot of authority directors or senior managers at the very least, have used their authority to bypass controls, alter documentation, do naughty things, and because they're senior, they tend to get away with it. For 
quite a long period of time. The reason I'm raising this story is it demonstrates the importance of reputation when you're a professional. People want to trust professionals. The moment your reputation is cast into doubt, you have got a big problem. And this is a key theme behind the importance of quality management, quality control of audit work. So if you're sitting the audit and assurance or advanced audit and assurance paper, this is a very important story for you. It shows you that where there is even a sniff of bad quality auditing, and we don't know if there was bad quality auditing, EY might have done nothing wrong. But because there's been a big fraud and because it looks like EY didn't spot it, the damage is already done. And that creates a big longer term headache for EY. There's every chance that they're going to get fined for their work on Wirecard, maybe even something worse. But the fact is the bigger damage is the big loss of clients they're going to have. Because think about it, why do companies care about which audit firm checks their accounts because they want their accounts to be believed by shareholders. And if people see the name of a firm on there that they don't trust, what's the point in having the audit? Also on page 10, we have another story down at the bottom of the page involving a company called Capital Group. So what have Capital Group been up to then? Well, Capital Group are replacing their executive chair. Now, I don't care who the people are. That doesn't really matter. Don't care about the names, but they are replacing their executive chair. Well, firstly, what is an executive chair? Well, this is very common in the US where the chairman of the board is also the chief executive. So they do both. And as students of corporate governance will know, that in many parts of the world is considered a bad idea because it means one person is both running the company and running the board. A lot of power in one person's hands. So a good example of uh, not splitting the roles, except Capital Group are taking this opportunity to divide the role into two, chairman and chief executive. Hooray, you think. Well done then. Good corporate governance. Yeah, well, don't rush to applaud them because the chairman who is taking over still has an executive role. They're dividing the job up, but the new chairman will not be independent as a chairman is meant to be. A chairman shouldn't have any executive role within a company. They should just be there to oversee the board. So they're splitting the role up maybe due to workload, but they're not really improving the corporate governance as much as they could have done. So that is Capital Group. On the next page, page 11, we have a company I'm sure you've heard of called Toyota. So what's going on with Toyota? Well, the guy running Toyota, and in Japan they tend to call this president rather than chief executive, is becoming the chairman. 
another piece of what we would normally say is bad corporate governance. Chairman should be independent, shouldn't be the recent chief executive. This is old style business, moving from chief executive up to chairman, so no independence. We don't like it. Boo! But on this case, the name of the person is relevant. He is Mr. Toyoda. Because Toyoda is the family that created Toyota. This is a family business where the family still have a lot of authority and involvement. So he doesn't want to get involved in the day-to-day running of the company anymore, but equally to protect the family's name and history, he's not leaving and it's expected he will still have quite an involved role, more involved than your normal chairman would do. So good example there of another piece of bad corporate governance. But why is there bad corporate governance? Because it's a family company and typically family dominated companies put the family ahead of other matters and therefore don't like complying with corporate governance too much because it tends to reduce the family's involvement and authority. Moving onwards, can you believe we've already had five stories, still got a couple more to go. Um, Just a quick note on a little article on page 12 about the competition watchdog complaining about greenwashing. Hey, what does all that mean? Well, whenever you see the word green, you should be thinking environmental and social environmental sustainability reporting is a big thing in the world of business and accountancy these days. So there is a concern that because companies need to look green, environmentally friendly, that many are putting things in their adverts to make it look like they're green, but they are making claims which are dubious, to put it mildly. And the competition watchdog who looks at things like advertising and makes sure people aren't telling naughty lies is concerned that companies are, uh, well, are they lying? Are they just um, stretching the truth a bit to try and make it look like they are more environmentally responsible than they actually are? But I'm going to move on now to another firm of accountants and a nice little story, this involving PwC. I don't think it's a nice story for PwC, I hasten to add, but a nice little story because it's got quite a few useful angles for your studies. Firstly, the story. What is the story? So there is a company that used to be called Quindell and A few years back, I think this was about 2015, if my memory is right, uh, they wanted to sell part of their company to another company. So they're basically selling, let's call it a division. I don't think it was a subsidiary for those of you who love your consolidated accounts. Uh, I think this is a sale of a division. Uh, In accounting terms, this is looking like a discontinued operation, by the way. Anyway. They were negotiating with the buyer, uh, a company called Slater and Gordon. And originally, 
the price they were looking to sell for was about 700 million. So this is a big deal. And then Slater and Gordon came back and said, well, we don't want to pay 700 million anymore. We've changed our minds. Uh, we want to pay 637 million, 73 million pounds less. Well, Quindell wanted to sell, a bit upset about the lower price, but they agreed the price and they sold. But they then discovered that someone from PWC, PWC were advising Quindell, someone from PWC had had a conversation with someone from the bank who were representing Slater and Gordon, the buying company, and the allegation is that PwC told them certain things about Quindell that made the buying company think, uh-oh, this is not as good as we thought it was, and hence they used that information to reduce their bid because they didn't want to pay such a high price anymore. So Quindell are suing PwC for breach of confidentiality because you can't go telling information about your client to other parties. You're not meant to do that. Now that's one angle to the story and if it turns out this is true, and Quindell by the way are suing I think for 73 million, the gap between the price they were originally agreeing and the lower price they ended up getting. So they're suing PwC for that 73 million. And if it is proven that PwC had that conversation, well, clearly that's a breach of confidentiality. And I'd imagine PwC will find themselves in a spot of bother. Now, I should warn you, whenever accountancy firms end up with cases like this, the moment there's a little hint that there's a reasonable chance they might lose, everything tends to go quiet. And it turns out they've done a deal behind closed doors and we'll never find out what actually happened. Some sort of settlement will probably happen if PwC are guilty and know that. But what makes this story even more interesting to me is what happened next. Because after Slater and Gordon bought this bit of Quindell for £637 million, very shortly afterwards, they did something that accounting students will hopefully be well aware of. They did an impairment review into the division they bought. And to their horror, it turned out to look absolutely awful. And of that 637 million, they wrote off, they impaired 558 million. Meaning by my maths, there's only 79 million left. So massive impairment review. Now just look at the, I don't know, would we call this irony or just utter madness of this situation? Quindell sold a business for 637 million, which apparently is only worth 79 million. And they're complaining? And now they want to sue PwC for another 73 million? I can't help feeling that looks a little bit on the greedy side. 
And if they have genuinely sold a division that was massively overvalued and the buyer didn't realise until it was too late, I think if I was Quindell, I'd be walking away very quickly from this situation and thanking my lucky stars I got away with it. So a nice story there with a bit of ethics, confidentiality and potential breach of that confidentiality. Quindell are claiming they lost out as a result, and I suppose they did. They could have got away with even more ludicrous behaviour and sold a £79 million business for £700 million. But also a nice bit of accounting in there as well, because as we know, when you buy things and there's goodwill, you need to do an annual impairment review. Or if performance is not what you were hoping, you do an impairment review anyway. And that's what's happened here. And a massive write-off for Slater and Gordon. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you found it useful and realised that from just one edition, one daily edition of the Financial Times, so many stories can be of relevance to your studies. The key is to practice reading them. Put a bit of time in, and when you're reading the stuff, don't focus so much on the individual personalities, but try and think, where does this fit into my studies? Is this corporate governance? Is it audit quality? Is it business strategy? Is it tax? And think a bit while you're reading it. See you again for the next episode of Exam World Meets Business World. <laughs>